listening to Nightlight. And yes, you're listening to Nightlight. Nice to be with you. You know, for quite some time now, I've wanted to get it together to produce a Nightlight show on the topic of evolution versus creation. But I never just got around to it. But recently, when I was in India attending a seminar near Hyderabad, I met a Canadian fellow named John Lyle, who has a ministry in Bangalore primarily, giving lectures in schools and colleges on creation science. I was able to bring back from India the excellent PowerPoint presentation that he uses in his lectures to share with my Bible students and with my children, as well as an interview with John that you're going to enjoy on Nightlight today. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. But first, let's get the show rolling with an oldie goldie from Michael Fogarty. Susie said to me while we were walking through the park one day Is it true that you believe in God like people say How can you believe in something you can't see nor even feel I answered look all around you girl there's proof he's Oh, the world is not an accident It was made with loving hands It worked so miraculously So perfectly planned Now I believe in love That God made the world For you and me is love is clearly seen in his creation. 
Michael Fogarty, Proof of Love. I love that song. I hadn't heard it for many years until I acquired a copy a few months ago. Very happy to add it to my song library to use, especially on shows like this one, where we're talking about God's creation, the beauty and wonders of nature being proof that there had to be a creator. It's nightlife. What a delight. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, I was in India recently. India, by the way, was where I got started in Christian radio in the mid-70s, and I still enjoy going back there from time to time to visit old friends. Anyway, while there, I was able to interview some interesting people for Nightlight, one of whom is John Lyle, who gives lectures on creation science in schools and colleges there, and is even petitioning the Minister of Education in Bangalore to have creationism taught in schools. Anyway, I sat down with John in the living room of the guest house where I was staying and recorded this interview with him on my laptop. You're with Nightlight. John, thanks for sharing with us on Nightlight. Oh, thank you, Simon. I'm happy to be here. Nightlight's interview of the week. Okay, uh, I'd just like to make the point that the teaching in most science textbooks that there is no creator, that God uh, has nothing to do with the formation of the natural world or the origin of the human race uh, or the plant and animal world, that this kind of teaching actually does have harmful effects from the ethical point of view. After all, if, uh, if, I, if I think there's no creator, then what does it matter what I do in this life? I, if I think I'm an animal, that uh, I'm just a descendant of a monkey, uh, what's to stop me from acting like a, just an animal driven by instinct? Uh, there's nothing about right or wrong. Everything is just a struggle for survival. And uh, so this kind of ethical harm is being done, I feel, to our young people when we teach them that uh, in their earlier years that uh, God has nothing to do with the formation of the natural world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hitler depended uh, a great deal on evolution. It was the basis for his genocide of the what he called inferior races, uh, the survival of the fittest and all that. Um, and then also, when you feel aimless or depressed or something, if you think there's no God, you're really lost. And if we don't teach our young people about the role of the Creator in forming the natural world, we're, it's like we're sending them adrift into the sea of aimlessness and uncertainty and depression. We need to give them the right uh, understanding so that they will have that assurance that there is a higher power that loves them and can help them in their times of uh, they don't feel purposelessness, they need a purpose in life or feeling depressed and so on. And also to, to have that sense of accountability. When I get mm-hmm. to the end of the road, uh, I am going to stand before my maker <laughs> mm-hmm. and I am accountable for what I do in my lifetime. Okay, but anyway, aside from the ethical uh, side of it, uh, uh, from a scientific point of view, uh, evolution theory as it is now is losing its credibility in the scientific world. Why is that? Uh, Over the last maybe 10 or 20 years, uh, scientists have been discovering about uh, DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. Uh, Inside uh, every cell in your body, you have, this is an amazing fact, you have 3 billion of these, uh, what they call four-character digital codes in every cell in every cell of your body and these are like the blueprints just like blueprints for a building they guide how the building is supposed to be built so dna is the same thing it guides how your body is supposed to grow and develop how many billion in one cell three billion three billion yes (laughs) so it's not just a simple cell as darwin thought yes yes so when you have something like these blueprints that's 
information. Now, when you have information, then there has to be an intelligence behind it. There has to be an author. If you see uh, hieroglyphics, well, there was an intelligent person that wrote those hieroglyphics. They didn't just get there by themselves. If you see uh, a textbook, again, there's an intelligence, an author behind it, or this morning's newspaper. So information that's locked in our cells, how did that get there? How did, the, how did the blueprints for a building get there? An architect made them, right? How did the information in our body cells, how did the DNA information, how did it get there? There has to be an intelligent designer. And this uh, discovery about uh, what DNA does in our uh, biological makeup so astounded one atheist philosopher by the name of Sir Anthony Flew that uh, he discarded his atheist beliefs and he became a believer. He knew, hey, God does exist. There has to be a God. Otherwise, how did this uh, DNA information get there in our bodies? Right, John, I've heard there's not just one, but there's many scientists are coming to the same conclusion. Yes, that's right. Uh, many scientists are... It's an inescapable conclusion. You can't... Uh, it's hard to worm out of it. And uh, so many scientists are realizing there has to be intelligent designer. In fact, uh, many of the great scientists, uh, Einstein, Kepler, Sir Isaac Newton, Galileo, they all had a very strong faith in God. And uh, they felt that science uh, just was helping them to discover more about God's creation. Thank you. 
taste the side Pandora's box is open wide Now good is evil and evil's good Or so says Hollywood We've all acquired a taste for blood A show without some is a dud We eat it up and then lament our streets jungle a song bemoaning the state of the modern educational system where god has been shut out of the schools and the theory of evolution is taught as an undisputable fact even though as our guest on the program today john lyle is going to show us the theory of evolution is scientifically impossible nightlight insights 
Okay, now I'd like to uh, just uh, talk about a, another aspect here, uh, monkey-to-man evolution. You usually see this picture of a, a monkey gradually changing into a, a modern-day homo sapiens. So uh, let us just take a look at some of the different so-called ape men. Neanderthal man. I remember him. The first fossil was discovered in 1859. Since that time, scientists have begun to realize that the Neanderthal tribe of people were fully human. They had a different uh, body uh, structure, slightly different structure, but uh, basically the differences were no greater than some of the, the differences that uh, we see in the human the races of mankind today. The study of the of this uh, of the Neanderthal man has shown uh, he has the same brain size as we do. In fact, most of them actually have larger brains, brain uh, skulls. They buried their dead, they used tools, they had a complex social structure, they employed uh, language, they played musical instruments. So really, they're just uh, a branch of the human race. Another well-known uh, ape man or missing link was the Piltdown Man. Now, in this, this is in 1912. In this case, this was, hap this was a total forgery. Uh, the man who uh, did this, he got a human skull, uh, stained it, make it look old, and he got a jaw bone of an orangutan, stained it to make it look old, filed the teeth so that the teeth would look more human, put them together, buried them somewhere, and then later dug it up and said, Aha, I found the missing link. <laughs> this missing link, so-called, was in our textbooks for 40 years. Can you imagine? It was a total forgery, but there it was, the great missing link in our textbooks for so long. Until finally in 1953, someone realized that, hey, this is a phony. They did some tests on it, and they realized the whole thing was just a fake. Uh, the next missing link to come along was uh, Java Man. Someone was digging in Indonesia. They found a, a human thigh bone not far from an ape-like skull. So the scientists assumed that, oh, they must be, they're part of the same creature. Uh, I've got a human and an ape bone together. Oh, good. This is our missing link. Later investigations showed that the, the skull belonged to a gibbon, and the, the other bone had nothing to do with it. It was just a scientist, I guess, wanting to find the missing link. So then uh, Nebraska man, in 1922, somebody found a tooth, and they made a huge, this great reconstruction of a, some kind of apish-like uh, figure based on just a single tooth. Again, later on, investigation showed that that tooth didn't actually belong to a man or an ape or anything, but to a peccary, uh, which is the relative of the pig. In more recent times, in the 1970s, the Australopithecus uh, fossils were found. Now here again, this is a, it's a matter of misinterpretation, really. Originally, this was proclaimed as, oh, here we have the great missing link, and glossy presentations were made in certain magazines and so on, so everybody was convinced, oh, here we have, we found it, finally found it, the missing link. But then later, in computer investigations uh, came to uh, show that these bones just belong to those of an ape, an ape that has gone extinct. Again, it's a question of misinterpreting the evidence. It's like a detective. A, a detective is supposed to look for evidence, but a good detective will take care to make sure to interpret it properly and not jump to premature conclusions. And, uh, well, I guess I suspect that's what's happened, that uh, scientists, uh, because of a preconceived idea of evolution, because there's, it's almost a holy grail. If you can find the missing link, then uh, you've really made a big discovery. John, if man did evolve slowly from apes to humans over millions and millions of years, wouldn't there be millions and millions of missing links? Wouldn't we be finding them everywhere? 
Yes, indeed, Simon. Uh, so that's uh, that's another problem. There's really no evidence of missing links, not only with monkey to man, but also uh, in the in the animal kingdom as well. There should be, as you say, millions of missing links, but they're just not there in the fossil record, and we don't see it today either. Some of the creatures that people have tried to say are missing links, when you look closely at them, you find that they're actually not really in between. They're they're pretty much either one or the other belong to one or the other species. Well, they say about 60 billion years ago A little fish changed to a tadpole Sprouted legs and grew some hands Then it crawled out on the land Changed from a reptile to a monkey, then a man Today I took the Bible to my school But the teacher said that was against the rules She said my grandpa's a gorilla My dad's a chimpanzee And my little baby brother's a baboon Did Charlie make a monkey out of you? Do you think you should be living in a zoo? Don't you know that it's a lie When it comes your turn to die You'll find out you're not a monkey but a fool Well I've heard some far-fetched stories in my day But the one I heard this morning takes the cake Well I'm looking in the mirror Just checking out my rear But I can't find a tail growing any place did Charlie make a monkey out of you? Do you think you should be living in a zoo? Don't you know that it's a lie? When it comes your turn to die You'll find out you're not a monkey but a fool So I stood up to the teacher and told the class I can't swallow this baloney about our past Evolution really stinks There's too many missing links To believe all this is just too much to ask Did Charlie make a monkey out of you? Do you think you should be living in a zoo? Don't you know that it's a lie When it comes your turn to die out you're not a monkey but a fool Did Charlie make a monkey out of you? Do you think you should be living in a zoo? Don't you know that it's a lie When it comes your turn to die You'll find out you're not a monkey but a fool You'll find out you're not a monkey but a fool Don't let Charlie Over 30 years old, that song, but still a classic spoof on Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Did Charlie make a monkey out of you? Uh, here's an interesting quote from uh, the brother of Charles Darwin. His name was Erasmus. And he wrote a letter to his brother and he said, 
Your theory is so entirely satisfactory to me that if the facts won't fit in, why, so much the worse for the facts is my feeling. <laughs> so <laughs> what he's saying there is, oh, this theory is so utterly profound that, well, you know, if the facts, the evidence, if they, they should just mind their own business and take a back seat to the theory. <laughs> my goodness. Well, this is not science. Right. Nightlight. Okay, now having said all that, uh, Darwin was correct about uh, uh, many of his observations. There is uh, quite a bit of variety in the natural world that is caused by the process of natural selection. Species are able to adapt to their environments and make slight modifications, slight changes in their, uh, their structure. Right, but you're saying, John, that this can only happen within species, right? You can breed different kinds of dogs, for example, but you can never breed a cat with a dog or a bird with a fish or whatever. Yes, there's a, every species has a, a basic gene structure that uh, they uh, cannot go beyond. In Genesis chapter 1, it is mentioned about 10 times God made the species, uh, the different species, after their kind or after its, its kind. Um, if you look in the natural world, there's a barrier of sterility between species. Uh, a cat cannot mate with a dog, otherwise you'd end up with a cat dog or something like that. Or even between closely related species, you'll run into this barrier of sterility. For example, a horse mating with a donkey, you end up with a mule, okay? But that mule is sterile, cannot have offspring. So if you want more mules, you have to keep mating horses with donkeys. You can't get two mules to mate and have baby mules. That's, that's exactly right. A female mule could mate with a horse, but their offspring is a horse, or she could mate with a donkey, and their offspring would be a donkey. So there's a barrier there, and for good reason, because otherwise, uh, how confusing the natural world would become. And this was God's way of keeping order in the creation. Otherwise, you'd have quite a lot of confusion. So on the same principle, there's a, also a barrier that prevents species from changing beyond certain limitations. Like we're talking about, uh, there's many different breeds of dogs. They all have that same basic gene structure. A dog is still a dog. It doesn't change into another species. Again, it's just God's way of keeping order in the creation, in his natural world. Yet at the same time, he's allowed quite a bit of variety. We have so many different breeds of dogs. We have many different races of humanity, all kinds of varieties of plants and so on. And it makes, a, it makes the world a more interesting place, doesn't it? <laughs> John, you know, this is one of the reasons I'm convinced that God has to intercede soon, because now scientists are crossing that barrier that God has set in place to separate one species from another. And with gene splicing, tinkering with DNA, they're managing to create hybrid creatures, including developing so-called transhumans that would no longer be made in God's image. Anyway, let's go back, John, and talk about the so-called simple cell and why it's anything but simple. Earlier, you told us that one cell contains three billion strands of DNA. Tell us more about the complexity of a single cell and why it couldn't possibly have created itself by any kind of evolutionary process. Uh, yeah, in Darwin's, uh, Darwin's day, to them and the, then, the cell was just a, a very simple thing. They thought it was just a blob of jelly that they could easily imagine might 
change and evolve. <laughs> Nowadays, we know differently. Some studies have been done. Uh, one particular uh, study by uh, Michael Behe uh, was very interesting about uh, the uh, flagellum cell. It's a self-propelling uh, cell. In a study of it, uh, he found that uh, there are about 40 different protein parts that all have to be working together. And, and those parts work just like a motor. There has to be a there has to be a propeller, a drive shaft, a U joint, uh, a way to get uh, mm-hmm. uh, fuel from the environment, uh, acid in. <laughs> so many things, just for this one little cell. It's just as complicated as a as a factory. It's just one simple cell. So uh, and those things had to all be put into place at one time for the cell to work. In other words, that's the, I think they call it irreducible complexity. Correct. In other words, those parts couldn't have put themselves together. They had to be assembled at one time in order for the thing to work. Is that correct? Yes, yes. It'd be like going to an auto parts store. You could get all the parts you needed to assemble a car, but it's not going to assemble itself. Or if you did have a, a car and let's say the left front wheel was missing, your car is not going to work. So all the pieces have to be there simultaneously or it doesn't work and how complicated is the mechanisms within a single cell compared let's say with a car well i know i know you can safely say that it is just as complex as a car well with three billion uh, of those four character digital codes in the dna i guess you'd have to say it's a lot more complicated than a car Mm. i stand in awe in meditation of your creation Renewed in my youth, 
spirit and in truth I want to worship you Lord To me you are so good Along with Emmanuel Gilligan, we're standing in awe at some of the amazing facts about the intricacies and complexities of God's creation that renders the theory of evolution absolutely obsolete. And we're only scratching the bare surface of all the material that's available. We're just whetting your appetite to do more research into this topic. And there's so many resources online. I'll ask John to give you some links at the end of the program, as well as his own website where you can download the PowerPoints and the materials that he uses to teach creation science in schools and colleges in India. Did you know you can listen online or download your favorite nightlight shows as well as other radio programs and audio inspirations produced at Radioactive Productions? Visit our website today at radioact.org. All right, back to you, John. Uh, Let's talk now about some of the basic laws of physics that the theory of evolution contravenes. For example, the first and second law of thermodynamics. Let's start with those. Okay, so the difference between a law of science and a theory of science is that the laws of science have been proven many, many, many times over. Theories are just ideas or concepts that haven't yet been proved. As we've seen already, there are plenty of proofs against the theory of evolution. Okay, so the law of thermodynamics, uh, most people are familiar with the first law that uh, energy can change state, but it remains constant. The the level of energy is always the same, matter and energy. Uh, The second law states, I guess to sum it up, you could say the universe is getting disorderly. Let's say you, you, you burn a, a liter of petrol. Mm-hmm. It uh, disperses into different molecules of carbon and hydrogen and, mm-hmm. and so on. You don't get that back again. Mm-hmm. Right? Everything is, is getting more scattered, more disorganized. That's the whole natural tendency of the natural world, and it's a law of science. Even your room, if you just leave it, it's going to get untidy. That's right. Yeah, if you don't maintain your house, it's going to, you know, 
collapse. So anything left to itself yeah. tends to deteriorate. That's right, yeah. So there's no process in the natural world where things are getting more organized. On their own. Yeah, yeah which is, uh, is contrary to the theory of evolution. So that leads to a big question, can life emerge from non-life? According to that law of science, no, how could it? How could it possibly just a few amino acids manage to you know, build themselves together and build proteins and DNA and then, then build a cell and so on? So it wouldn't work. There was a ex- famous experiment done in 1953, I believe, the Miller-Urey experiment, and they, they were able to create some amino acids in the laboratory. Now, amino acids are, uh, are not themselves alive. They're, they are the building blocks for protein molecules, DNA molecules, and so on. So at the time, it was thought that, oh, this is a great discovery. This, this proves that life can emerge from non-life. But then later investigations showed that, uh, well... Okay, you might be able to create some amino acids, but <laughs> it doesn't go any further than that. And even the amino acids that they managed to get in the laboratory were certainly not all the amino acids that are needed. It's a bit like our, our illustration earlier about the, the car. You can have all the parts, you can have all the amino acids you want, it's still not going to do anything mm-hmm. without an outside force. The supernatural uh, force has to be there to create, to bring the life. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. John, what evidence is there in geology that the world was created and didn't evolve? What about these rock stratas that were taught at school, like you see in the Grand Canyon, for instance, which they say are the result of erosion happening over millions of years? Tell us about those. Well, uh, from the uh, uniformist or evolution point of view, is that all we see nowadays are, nowadays are gradual processes happening. The assumption has been very strong in the scientific world that that should explain everything. But uh, a closer look at the evidence uh, does tell us otherwise. Well, for one thing, all the, the stratified sedimentary rocks, those had to be formed by water action. Do a simple experiment. If you just take a glass jar, fill it with dirt and then some water, shake it, you see it settle into layers. So we see these stratified sedimentary rocks all through the world. So how did they get there? If they're all everywhere in the world, does that mean there were just little floods everywhere? It's quite obvious that... Uh, as we know from the book of Genesis, and I might add, it's also in Mahabharata, the sacred book in India. It's in Quran, and it's in many uh, different ancient societies. I believe 270 at least ancient societies have this legend about a great flood mm-hmm. that once covered the earth. What we now in our modern enlightened society think is just a fable or something, uh, at one time it was just common knowledge. And the amazing thing about it is that uh, uh, the scientific evidence points very clearly to the action of this great flood in the geological structures. Mm. Uh, Now, for example, the Grand Canyon. Well, before I talk about the Grand Canyon, uh, fossil formations, how do fossils form? What happens when an animal uh, dies? Well, the the soft tissues disappear. Uh, If the bones are left exposed to the elements, they'll disappear also. So in the natural process of things, fossils do not form. There has to be some kind of catastrophe so that the creature is buried quickly, is under pressure, and this is how fossils have to form. So what kind of catastrophe could that be? Well, where are most fossils found? 
Oh, they're found in sedimentary, water-formed rock. Oh, by flooding. Oh, a great flood. So it, it all makes quite it makes mm -hmm. a sense. You have all this sedimentary rock all over the world. Some of the fossils uh, are gathered in big graveyards, which provide very clear evidence that uh, there was a, a, a massive uh, washing away of herds of animals, and they were put uh, smashed into a common grave. And there also, John, uh, fossils of fish being found on the top of uh, mountains and things like that? Yes, yes, there are, yes. In fact, Mount Everest, the top 3,000 feet of Mount Everest is all sedimentary rock, and there are lots of marine fossils. What does that mean, you might wonder? Well, at one time, Mount Everest was just a flat ocean bottom. So... Uh, in the process of recreating the Earth, there's a lot of uh, uh, tectonic uh, earthquake activity going on. And this was the time of the creation of the mountain ranges like the Himalayas or the Andes or the Rocky Mountains. Geologists will, will tell you that these are young mountain ranges. They're young because they, are, they were formed uh, later on. Uh, at this time, at the tail end of the flood, I, I would imagine. So the fish weren't stranded on the top of Mount Everest because it was covered with water at the time of the flood, and when the water went down, they were stranded there. That's right, yes. The the hills that, and mountains of the original creation uh, can be seen in uh, many places of the earth. In this part of uh, India, most of the rock here is uh, from the original creation. It's what they call pre-Cambrian. It's a hard crystalline rock. And where I come from in Canada, the Canadian shield is also that type of rock. Many parts of the Earth are, are original creation type of rock structure. And then, of course, many parts like Rockies, Himalayas, uh, they are mostly the rock from uh, was formed uh, as a result of the flood. Which uh, brings me to another point. Uh, Grand Canyon is a very good example of the kind of uh, erosion action that happened at the time of the flood. If you look at the Grand Canyon, you see all these stratified layers. This was the result of the flood. And those layers at that time had not uh, consolidated. They were, had not had time to cement. And basically, that was just uh, soft mud. So as the waters were running over the land, uh, they were able to gouge very deep uh, canyons into the land surface there because uh, it was still soft. The land was still soft. Normally in erosion, what happens is uh, the rivers, uh, they can, they can uh, erode the soft banks of the river. And it makes kind of a long, shallow valley. But in this case, in, in many places of the world, it happens very quickly and it goes deep. And actually, you, you know, you can see the same thing in miniature. Uh, I've, take, uh, I've seen it happen in, at beaches where the, the water gouges through the sand, makes a similar type of formation. Or I've seen it in construction sites. There's been a lot of mud and dirt has been dumped. And then at the first rain, it, uh, you see this uh, peculiar canyons form. So it's the same thing with the Grand Canyon. It was formed, that's how it was formed, just by uh, the water action over the ground surface that was still very soft. These rock formations is such an incredible testimony of our ancient heritage, what happened in the ancient past. And oh, I would see these rock formations all during my youth, and I had no idea what it was. But uh, it's such a powerful, interesting, intriguing uh, testimony of what God did at that time during the Great Flood. Call me naive, but I still believe in Adam and Eve. Call me insane, but I think when it rains, just know his family. 
of the universe? Well, uh, I think the most important uh, point to realize is the universe operates according to very precise laws and formulas. The universe came about as a result of, again, just like our biological forms and so on, there, has, there was an intelligent uh, designer, God, the creator, behind it. So 
theories like the Big Bang Theory don't make a whole lot of sense simply because it's a chaotic random process again that is uh, believed to have created this wonderful order that we see in the universe. I mean, John, anything that explodes just leaves a lot of debris and disorder, right? So how could something as mathematically precise as the universe come from something that went bang? And even if some little tiny speck of dense matter went bang and formed the universe with its planets and all of its matter originating from that source, I mean, this sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But even if it was so, where did the energy come to make that huge explosion in the first place? Who created the energy and the little dense dot that exploded? If you know that uh, God had to create the energy and God had to create the matter, then why couldn't God also do a lot more than just that? <laughs> mm-hmm. In the
that's another real oldie goldie. We've been playing a lot of oldie goldies on the program today, over 30 years old, but all really good songs, very pertinent to our topic of creation versus evolution. And thanks so much to our guest, John Lyle, for being with us. John, that's been really, really interesting. I've been wanting to do this program for a long time. Before you go, though, tell us a little bit more about your ministry there in India, teaching creation science in the schools and colleges. How does it go over with the students and these educational establishments when you come in and debunk the theory of evolution, which is, after all, one of the bedrocks of modern education? Now, yes, we have been visiting uh, schools and uh, pre-university colleges. Most of what I've, uh, we've just talked about, uh, I have it in a PowerPoint form, and we bring it to the schools. We do a little program, give a talk, we have some songs, we make it entertaining. The reception has always been uh, very positive. Many teachers are very glad that, uh, to have someone come along and, I guess, teach something that uh, for them is probably difficult mm. uh, to teach, uh, simply because the it's of officially, in the textbooks at least, uh, the evolution. What always seems so strange to me is that when you read it in the textbooks, uh, it makes it sound as if uh, evolution is uh, scientific, there's a proper way of looking at it, and the creation gets a bare mention, and it sounds like it's uh, something superstitious. Really, it should be the other mm. way around, I, I feel. There's more scientific evidence for creation than there is for evolution. So would you say that evolution basically, um, at least it is still called the theory of evolution in yeah, most, uh, that it is a theory, but even something that you really have to believe by faith, it would almost come under the category of being a religion, I would think. <laughs> well, that's what faith is. You're believing in something you can't see. So we believe in the God that we cannot see. But of course, we see all the evidence uh, which mm -hmm. points to that. Evolution has to be the same thing. They ha they're believing in something that you don't really see. What Without they, any evidence pointing <laughs> to it. <laughs> yeah, of course, what they always do is say, oh, well, if we don't understand it now, but you know there are millions and millions and millions of years, so therefore uh, it must have happened, but we just don't, can't see it now. <laughs> Inspiring you to draw closer to God. You're listening to Nightlight. John, do you have a website or anywhere where people could get more information if they want to study this topic in more depth? Well, uh, Simon, I, I do have my own website. Uh, it's called uh, eduorigins.org. I think the best place, if you're looking for information on the subject, is the Case for a Creator uh, video clips, which you can find quite easily on YouTube. The presentations are updated, upbeat, and scientific. It's a very good presentation uh, on the subject of creation, and uh, I would recommend it. Well, let me give you John's website once again. It's eduorigins.org. And for those clips on YouTube, search for Case for the Creator. Thanks for being with us, John, and we'll be praying for you and your ministry to teach creation science to the young people in India. God bless you. Thank you, Simon. I really uh, enjoyed it. Uh, considered a privilege to have been part of your Nightlight show. Nightlight. You're listening to Nightlight, brought to you by Radioactive Productions. Nightlight. And as I said before, we're only barely scratching the surface of all the scientific evidence that exists to completely discredit the evolutionary theory of Charles Darwin. There are whole Christian ministries, even creation science museums, dedicated to proving that God created the world. It just didn't happen by 
accident. Evolution is the biggest lie ever foisted on mankind. And for the most part, mankind has eagerly received it because it gave them the excuse not to believe in God. The Bible says that they did not like to retain God in their knowledge because if God did create the world and its inhabitants, then they are his property and he's the boss and they don't want to acknowledge God as boss. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25, it says, because they knew not God, they glorified him not as God, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools who changed the glory of the immortal God into an image like that of corruptible man and birds and forfeited beasts and reptiles who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped the creature more than the creator. The Bible also warns, beware of the lies of science falsely so-called, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Don't let the devil and science falsely so-called fool you with the fable of evolution. The biggest lie ever told. Stand up for Jesus and the story of his creation as told in the first chapters of the book of Genesis in the Bible. Amen. is Simon saying bye for now. Look forward to being back with you again very soon for another edition of Nightlight. God bless you all. Bye-bye.